From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. It's August, which means that here in the United States, we've been battling the coronavirus for about six months. And I want to be clear, the fight is far from over. There have been more than 4.4 million coronavirus cases in the U.S., and more than 150,000 deaths. And we continue to see cases rise across many states. I don't know about you, but despite the grim outlook, things feel very different today than they did a few months ago. And not just when it comes to the general public's willingness to come out of quarantine and, and leave their house. Here at Advisory Board, I've been hearing many leaders express the desire to return to quote-unquote normal, saying that they never saw a peak and they're not expecting one to hit their community. And there's a real danger in thinking that, especially when, at a national level, we're seeing inpatient bed capacity inching near the same peak we hit in April. So today, I want to talk about how important it is for leaders in healthcare to remain vigilant in the face of COVID-19. To do that, I've brought Dr. Jeremy Bull, the Chief Clinical Officer at Mount Sinai Health System. Hey, Dr. Bull. Hi. Is it all right if I call you Jeremy? Uh, That would be great. Well, Jeremy, where are you dialing in to Radio Advisory from? I'm dialing in to Radio Advisory from uh, New York State. Right now, I'm actually in Upper uh, Dutchess County taking a little break from my work down in the city. A much-needed and much-deserved break, I think. (laughs) Thank you. So let's start by just talking a little bit more about you. Tell us about your role at Mount Sinai. I have two roles at the Mount Sinai Health System. My my system role is that I'm the chief clinical officer, and uh, I oversee quality and safety and, and clinical excellence in that role. And I'm also the president of what we call Mount Sinai Downtown, which is a a network of a couple of hospitals and a number of ambulatory sites in Manhattan below 34th Street. Hmm. How long have you been in New York? I've been in New York since about 1994. Long time. Yeah, long time. And what this means is that you were a leader at the forefront of one of the major surge markets here in the country. In fact, I think most folks think of New York City as the place that's been associated with the peak of the coronavirus. I want to start by going back to the kind of weeks and months before the surge. Let's say the month of February. Cases had begun to rise in China and Italy. The WHO had declared a global health emergency. But the story in the U.S. had really just begun. What were you thinking back then? By February, we were tracking what was happening around the world pretty closely. In January, we had started having regular system meetings of our emergency command structure to start to organize our thoughts around what was happening, how quickly it was moving, and and what did we need to be prepared for. So by February, we had accelerated that work, although I don't think to to the extent anywhere near what what we were going to need to do as the pandemic arrived on our shores. 
I'm curious, honest moment, was that preparation for something that you thought might never actually come? How realistic did you think it was going to be at that point? Looking back, we had seen other outbreaks around the world in the last decade not turn into full-blown pandemics. And it wasn't yet clear to us that this was going to be what it became. And I think there was probably a little bit of denialism about just how severe things were going to get. So, you know, while we were watching it and we were starting to make preparations, you know, I think there was this moment where we probably had an opportunity to reach out to colleagues in China or in Italy or in other places that, you know, were already experiencing much more of the impact of the pandemic and have more detailed conversations about what it actually felt like. And I I regret that we didn't do that. You know, we were getting very mixed messages at the time, you know, from the news media, from the CDC, and from all sorts of different sources. You know, on the one hand, we were hearing that this was just sort of like a, a bad case of the flu. And in other cases, we were getting very sporadic reports about, you know, mass casualties and hospitals being overwhelmed. And I think, you know, I, I wish that we had done more at the time right. to dig in on that and, and try to gain more clarity, because I, I do think that would have advantaged us as this went along. But of course, that's also a natural reaction as a leader who, as you as you said, has dealt with moments that might turn into something like we've seen with the coronavirus, but of course, haven't actually gotten to that point. I recognize that we're not actually in anything close to an after yet. But I'm curious, at what point did you as a leader know that things were going to be potentially dramatically different in our industry, that telehealth would be normal, or that maybe we're going to rethink our approach to how we're managing hospital capacity, where you'll think of before coronavirus, after coronavirus? You know, I think it's been one of these things that that has happened over time as we gain more insight, and we continue to gain insight all the way along. You know, there were moments where it became, you know, obvious to us that telemedicine was probably here to stay in a way that was very different than pre-pandemic, as, as you mentioned. I think telemedicine is one of the obvious examples. The way that we do our work is clearly very different now. And, and we, we desperately long for the day when we can, you know, be in large groups again and have much more, you know, interpersonal contact But we also have gotten really good at working remotely and reading body language over a Zoom call and checking in on our colleagues and making sure that they're doing okay and the like, even though we can't all be in the same place at the same time. Uh, So that's different as well. I suspect in New York, you know, there are all sorts of after COVID-19 changes to our collective consciousness about what does a health system need to uh, be prepared for, even if this is a once in three generation event. The collective scar of, of our health system, which we always considered, you know, mighty, looking incredibly puny in the face of a, a tsunami of COVID, I think has changed how we think about preparedness dramatically. So I would say it's been evolutionary all along the way we've been gaining insight into what a post-COVID world looks like. And I, I think the insights are going to keep coming. Well, let's come back to the story of Mount Sinai in New York City. We all saw the news headlines across March and April and May, but I want to hear more from you about what Mount Sinai actually went through as part of the surge. What was that experience like at the peak? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I want to start just by saying that I, in my whole career, I have never, ever been prouder of uh, a group of people coming together to uh, do whatever it took 
to save as many lives as possible and to take care of each other and to take care of our city. At the peak, which was uh, in the first week of April, we were admitting a, a patient with COVID infection every six minutes into our health system. Mm. Wow. 250 in a 24-hour period. And, you know, we only have about 2,200 beds in the whole system. And patients who have COVID who get admitted are, are incredibly sick and have incredibly long lengths of stay. So you can imagine if we had continued to see those kinds of volumes for any length of time, how quickly our, our region would have become overwhelmed. But it was an extraordinary all-hands-on-deck moment where over the preceding six weeks, we had developed the capacity and the capability to take care of an enormous number of critically ill patients. And we never, ever reached a point where we, we couldn't take care of everybody that needed care. We never ran out of ventilators. We had enough protective gear for our staff. We had enough medications to take care of everybody. And that was because of this incredible mobilization effort, the likes of which I have never witnessed before. That's right. And I think that some folks might actually take that level of mobilization for granted. I may be speaking about the general public rather than healthcare leaders right now, but I'm kind of getting this sense of folks saying, well, we never overwhelmed the hospitals back in March and April. New York was was actually okay. But I'm not sure that folks realize everything that went into making sure that the hospital wasn't overrun. Yeah, it was really two things. It was that massive mobilization effort, which I can certainly talk more about. And it was also the essential shutdown of the region that bent our curve. If we had had another week of the kind of growth that we were seeing, which absolutely would have occurred in the absence of a, a total shutdown uh, two to three weeks before we hit the peak, the system would have been overwhelmed. There's no doubt in my mind, there would have been many, many patients who didn't receive basic modern medical care that we're used to being able to give to anybody who needs it in this country, it just wouldn't have happened. Half of it was the shutdown. And then the other half was this incredible effort on everybody's part to do whatever it took to make sure that we had the assets that we needed, the space, the staffing, the equipment, the clinical protocols to push through and take care of everyone. Do you mind if I ask just how close you got to being overrun? Sure. We peaked at about 2,000 COVID-positive patients in our system. We run about 2,000 beds normally, and we were working to increase our capacity by at least 50%, but a lot of those beds were still taken up with non-COVID patients. We were about a week away, I would say. if Again, if the growth had continued at the pace that it was, we were about a week away, I think, from cracking. And I think our city was. It wasn't just our health system. Every hospital and health system uh, in the region, you know, they were doing their very best, but, but at some point, you know, the volumes just become unmanageable. And you are a physician yourself. I'm wondering if you can share any stories of what it was like to be a physician or a nurse or a member of the leadership team in this moment of real crisis. As a a member of the leadership team, the work was incredibly intense. You know, we'd, we'd start the day incredibly early in the morning and essentially conk out, you know, at midnight or 1 a.m. And we never, ever felt like we were ahead of the game. We were mm -hmm. always working to track down more ventilators or, you know, try to cut another deal to get protective gear. Staffing was incredibly challenging, as you can imagine. You know, critical care staffing uh, is typically at a very high ratio. And that expertise is, is incredibly unique. 
There were an endless series of hurdles that we had to get over on a constant basis. One minute we're working to set up a, literally a tent hospital in Central Park. Hmm. Uh, the first one since the Civil War. Wow. To house, you know, more patients, transfer patients from our outlying hospitals in Brooklyn and Queens that were becoming overwhelmed. And the next minute, you know, we are uh, desperately trying to figure out uh, how to stay ahead of, you know, the number of deaths that we were seeing in our hospitals and making sure that we had enough morgue trucks available to, you know, to be able to take care of the deceased. So, you know, there was an, an endless series of logistics challenges and there was no time to process what we were going through. A lot of the, the emotional processing really occurred after, uh, as we came down the other side. As a doctor, I do, I wasn't involved in direct patient care. I spent a lot of time with physicians and, and nurses and others who were in direct patient care and they gave everything that they had, absolutely everything. I think out of a love for their colleagues, out of a love for their patients in our communities, out of a sense of duty, and despite fear, you know, and uncertainty, certainly early on when, you know, I think there was a lot of, there are a lot of questions about what, what does it take to stay safe as a provider? And they just, they kept showing up and they kept giving their all. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. The battle against COVID-19 continues, and we at the advisory board could not be more grateful for the continued commitment of our healthcare heroes on the front lines. In hopes of bringing a bright spot to your day, we've collected over 50 remarkable stories of strength, teamwork, generosity, and victory from your peers, and we've posted them at our website, advisory.com slash abrightspot. We hope that you will visit this page on those days when you just need a boost. Thank you for being our bright spot. I want to talk to you about something hypothetical. So you mentioned that in the very early stages in February, you were preparing for a world where coronavirus would come and hit the U.S. and hit New York City and hit Mount Sinai. But I wonder if you'd had maybe a little bit more notice or if perhaps you took a little bit more seriously what was happening in China and Italy. Are there things that you would have done differently? There are things we would have done sooner. Rather than having, give or take, six weeks to really mobilize, you know, we probably would have had eight weeks. That extra two weeks in the face of a potential onslaught makes it easier to, to get ready. So, you know, what were we doing in those six weeks? We were opening up a lot of mothballed space in our, on our campuses and converting it into clinical space. We were opening that tent hospital. We were procuring supplies and equipment. We were procuring more staff from around the nation to help us. So all of that, you know, having extra time makes it, uh, you know, I don't want to say easier because there's nothing easy about any of this, but, but makes it more doable. I think that's what we would have benefited from primarily is just having the extra time to do the work. I'll admit the reason why I'm asking this is because when I look or frankly talk to healthcare leaders across the country, there's this variable response where some say we're never going to be what happened to New York or it's not going to happen to us. And there's this kind of this, this move to go back to normal. At least that's, that's what we're hearing. And that cognitive dissonance is something that all healthcare leaders, frankly, all people can face. 
So I'm curious, as somebody who went through a surge in New York, if you were to send a message to those who might be digging in their heels, who might be slowing down their preparations, who might be ignoring the the time that they have now to prepare, what would you tell them? This is normal human psychology. We went through it in New York. As I said, I'm incredibly proud of how we responded and that we were able to treat everybody and save thousands and thousands of lives. But we went through the same kind of uh, of, of thinking early on. You know, um, how much attention do you divert to something like this in the midst of everything else that that you have to attend to and the like? One thing I, I also want to say is that once we once we made the decision that we were going to go all in, we went all in. I you know I remember our our chief financial officer. Um, essentially approving everything that we said we needed without question, which is not something that normally happens in a health system, nor, <laughs> no, nor, is, nor is it healthy, right? You need those checks and balances. <laughs> but in the face of, of what we were, what we finally appreciated we were likely to see, all of the silos in the organization that traditionally exist and all of the give and take that, that slows things down melted away and we were able to move very fast. Um, so what I, I think what I would say to, to people in those other regions is, is to do the scenario planning, figure out what would it take for you to be successful in managing through this and figure out what the, what the thresholds are that you're going to, you're going to make sure that you achieve. So what does that look like? Are you going to say, for example, let's do some scenario planning. Let's consider what's happened in other markets. And assuming we see these types of volumes, how much PPE do we want to have on hand? What do we want to have in our warehouse? So we don't have to rely on anybody else. And we can keep our people safe. What do we need in terms of, of pharmaceuticals? What do we need in terms of surge capacity? And then you can make some, you know, very reasonable decisions about, about investments to make today or work to make today to be ready tomorrow. I think the same applies to thinking through how are we going to communicate with our people if this happens and things are evolving very dynamically? What can we learn from other health systems? You know, one of the things that we learned was we needed to really make it easy for people to know what was going on because protocols change very quickly and uh, the types of PPE that's available might change very quickly. So we made a decision early on to take everything that we had and put it on a public-facing website, an employee resource website for COVID. And, and that became a critical tool for us to stay connected with everybody. We set up a an email address, covidquestions at mountsinai.org, hmm. for our staff where they could email 24-7 questions, concerns, ideas, and we would get back to them in real time. Sometimes they just had a question about, you know, they didn't know how to use something, a new piece of PPE that they were seeing. And that told us that we needed to do a better job of, of educating or getting pushing out information. Other times they had a question about their own health. And many times they had their own ideas for the system for things that we could do better. And to date, we've had over 1,800 members of our workforce use that email to to be able to send us information or a question and get something back. So a lot of that stuff can be set up today and be activated as needed. I would encourage people to take a look at our COVID resource website if they're interested, um, and we'll share the link for that. Again, it's public facing, and it'll give you a sense of what are the kinds of materials and protocols and communication tools that, that we've used to help people through this. So I think doing a lot of tabletop exercises what if scenarios, thinking hard about procurement, materials management, clinical protocols, all that kind of stuff. Much of that can be done without without spending a lot of money, uh, but then being really thoughtful about spending where you need to. The unforgivable scenario, as far as we were concerned, was ever being in a position where we couldn't keep our people safe. 
unforgivable. We, we needed to own that. And that meant that we moved heaven and earth to make sure that we had what they needed. That's the kind of thing we feel very strongly that, that health systems need to do. You mentioned at the start that you yourself or that leadership at Mount Sinai themselves fell into this trap of cognitive dissonance in the early stages. Is there something that would have led you to take the risk more seriously? Or is there something happening that you want to make sure other leaders take very seriously right now? One lesson that I think I learned was, uh, I think we should have we should have found a way to reach out to hospitals in, in parts of the world that had already been affected to gain some real world insight into what they were seeing and what they were experiencing. Picking up the phone and talking to a hospital administrator in Italy or, you know, people in the public health sector or others, I think would have cut through a lot of the noise and given us deep insight that we could have applied differently. And that's a lesson that we'll take going forward. So I would say that it, it applies today to, to, you know, to parts of the country that haven't yet experienced this. Does that mean that you're giving out your phone number to the parts of the country that might be saying, I'm not sure how to prepare, but I'd love to talk to someone in New York? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's again, it's one of the things that we can do to, to pay this forward. And by the way, it's something we got really good at as, as the pandemic hit was, you know, reaching out and talking to others who had been through this before and also to our peers in our region uh, in terms of what they were seeing and, and thinking about how we can collaborate. My only regret is, you know, I wish we had done that a little bit sooner. I think those are deep insights that cut through a lot of the noise. I'm curious, right now I'm hearing a lot of COVID fatigue and frankly, change fatigue, regulation fatigue. It's something that I think every human being is feeling right now. And certainly everyone working in the healthcare industry is feeling right now. So I want to know for you personally, what are you doing day to day to remain vigilant, to keep your nose to the grindstone and to not let yourself fall into that trap of some COVID fatigue? That's a great question. I, you know, I can answer it on a couple of levels. I think, to be completely honest, you know, I I uh, fought my way through the, you know, the peak and and the downslope and didn't do a lot of processing. We we all did what we had to do, but you know, coming out of that, uh, I think you know it was very emotionally challenging for me as I started processing everything we had been through, and all the suffering of our staff and all the loss of patients and and impact on our communities. But I knew that was coming because, you know, we had we had been very thoughtful about looking at what happens to people and what happens to organizations when they go through these kinds of traumas. And so you know, on a personal level as a leader, I, you know, I, I felt it was very important for me to be honest about that with others, that we can expect this to happen and that, that I was experiencing it myself. And to role model reaching out for help, to role model talking about these things without shame and to, to doing what I needed to do to take care of myself. Because I think that is the most important thing we can do as leaders in the time of crisis, and particularly in the time of prolonged crisis, is to make sure that we, we are in a very, very good place uh, physically and mentally to lead our people uh, with, you know, with a sense of determination and a sense of optimism. What it takes for, for different people is, you know, is different. For me, it means trying to get as much sleep as I can. For me, meditation has been enormously useful and powerful, strengthening my social contacts, my, my relationships with friends and family during this rather than withdrawing, making a point of, of connecting. Same thing at work, you know, really making a point of, of strengthening relationships. Offering acknowledgement and praise and gratitude is also incredibly important as a bulwark against, 
you know, fatigue, exhaustion, COVID, COVID exhaustion and everything else and, and doing everything that we know works to strengthen ourselves and help our organization stay resilient. I love that answer because you you sort of gave a little bit of the answer as a healthcare leader and as a physician, but you actually also just answered as a human being and what any person can do in this moment where we're dealing with great tragedy and great stress and and the need to remain vigilant whether you are running a hospital and, and a health system or whether you're just trying to get through the day-to-day six months in. Absolutely. I absolutely. And I, I don't think we we're, we're doing anybody a favor by, by not talking about this stuff. I, I think it's a tremendous sign of strength to talk about our struggles rather than a sign of weakness because they're real and they're real for everybody around us. And if people are feeling off kilter and yet nobody's talking about it, that is much worse because then people tend to feel very alone in what they're struggling with. Um, and, and it's very, very hard to build up resilience for the long haul if you feel alone and isolated. And that perfectly brings me to my final question. It's one that I'm asking of every guest that comes on to Radio Advisory. In this moment, there's a lot of leaders and markets and communities that might be feeling a bit complacent. What message do you have for those leaders when it comes to staying vigilant right now? For me, and I think for many of us here, it's, it's really trying to cultivate a mindset that we don't know what's coming next, even within the constraints of this pandemic. The idea is to be on the lookout for new information that changes our perception of where we are or what we need to do and cultivate that curiosity about it. You know, are we seeing an uptick in in neighboring regions? Are our people becoming more complacent with their own behaviors? Have we done a consistent job of messaging why it's still important to be vigilant or why it's still important to act in a safe manner? Are we seeing any signs at all that tell us that we're not we're not as prepared as we need to be? So I think, you know, cultivating a curiosity about that and a mindset that whatever we're doing today is probably not going to work for us tomorrow. So we're going to have to constantly reevaluate what we're doing and try new things and be okay with not getting it exactly right, learning from our mistakes, trying new things, evolving along the way, I think is really what it comes down to. The good news is that, that in many ways, that's a hallmark of the scientific method, you know, and that's what we're all trained in. And so I think we can lean on a lot of natural ability and skill that we have to look at the facts and draw insights from that and change what we do and not get overwhelmed by it. Well, Jeremy, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Your story is so important to share, and I really do hope that you get a little bit of a break and chance to recharge. Thanks so much. And, and we are. We definitely are. The rates are very low in New York, New York right now, and uh, we're actually in a very good place. But staying curious about the future. Every day. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you very much. As Dr. Bull said, it is so important for everyone in the country and certainly every healthcare leader to remain vigilant, to not allow ourselves to backslide now, and certainly not to allow ourselves to get complacent. As I said in the beginning, the fight is far from over. And I hope by listening to this episode, you have the motivation and the plan 
to prepare for whatever the future is going to look like in your market and the curiosity that's going to push you to keep asking those questions. Here at Radio Advisory, we're going to take just a short summer break. We'll be back after Labor Day with new episodes and new interviews. In fact, we are really excited about some of the new material we're going to be bringing at the end of the summer. But I bet you have ideas as well. So if you have ideas for an episode or a voice that you really want to hear on Radio Advisory, please email us. We're always available at podcastsadvisory.com. That's podcasts with an S. And remember, even though you're not going to be hearing us for a couple of weeks, we are always here to help. I don't know if you ever read this book called The Generals uh, by Thomas Ricks, but he talks a lot about World War II, and they knew that it was going to be years, not months, but years, and it wasn't clear how we were going to prevail. You know, we didn't really, we hadn't mobilized in decades for that kind of thing. You know, the Germans were, were just so much further ahead. And Eisenhower knew that to get through something that's that protracted, where the outcome isn't known, but losing is not an option. It requires leaders who are steely-eyed. They're very honest about the truth, about how bad it is and what the challenges are, but they also are incredibly optimistic about that we're going to find our way through. And that's what I keep anchoring to, is this idea that we just have to constantly be honest about the challenges that we're facing, and in the same breath, be very clear that we will find our way through no matter what. We're going to figure this out. So that's what keeps me going when I'm, when I'm struggling.